Hello, 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 and welcome to the third episode of Conversations. I'm Eliana. And I'm Patrick. And today we're joined by Oiku. Hello, everyone. I'm Oiku. I'm a Paris-based film critique. I write for several uh, medias, and I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us. How has the festival been treating you? Um, at, like in the first days, it was really stressful. Like the the queues were really long, the ticketing system. But I think since the big titles have have passed, I think we are entering the, the like the second week, and things will get calmer. And we'll finally start to enjoy ourselves, I guess. Like I'm mm -hmm. hoping, at least. And it's uh, sun is shining, the rain yes. has stopped. Like this is really good. <laughs> yeah, it's so good to have you here. And could you maybe tell us something about your affiliation to the Cannes Film Festival? Like your, like how many times have you been here in the past? And uh, this is my fourth time, but third time as press because the first time it was like a student accreditation and it's completely di different the experience like literally and for now like I can say uh, this the la like the, the previous ones but always there was like a pandemic situation and I feel like this is the most normal one and the most crowded so I think I try to get used to that like uh, be th that being so many people around And I think, like, yeah, this this year was a bit tough than last year, I'd say. <laughs> right. And maybe this year, as you say, it's really back to normal, whereas, you know, 2021 was really then packed with great titles of films, but not so, not so many journalists as they would usually attend the festival. Last year was more normal, but maybe the lineup was a bit worse, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, definitely, like, lineup was really bad. So this year so far, the films were, like, not... There are not any masterpieces apart, maybe, from Glazer. Uh, because last year, I remember, like, Stars at Noon... Um, Pacifiction, Crimes of the Future, like really good titles, but also very bad ones in the competition. <laughs> but right. this year, there's a, like a, some level that all the films that I saw till now was like uh, up to that level, maybe except Firebrand. And today I saw uh, Club Zero, which I hated it. Oh yeah. Apart from that, like it's it's okay. <laughs> Yeah, and when one is at a festival, one learns also to skip certain films if, you know, the buzz is very bad. So I don't even bother going to Firebrand because I only heard terrible ah. things. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, we have, uh, we have a good lineup for today. We have three films. Which films are we going to talk about today, Eliana? So today we will talk about the new Nuri Bilge Jelan yes. film about dry grasses as well as the new Joanna Arno film, The Feeling That the Time for Something Has Passed. And finally, we will talk about the new Todd Haynes film, May-December. Right. And maybe just as a note to our listeners, to our audience, it's just uh, we intended to upload more episodes so far. It was just, it was very busy and it's, you know, as Erku said earlier, if you have different accreditations, you have a different experience. So... This is why a lot of the screenings Eliana and I see at different times of the festival, which leads to very different schedules. So we often didn't have the time. And then if you get home back at like one or two, uh, you know, at night, it's difficult to imagine to still record a podcast. So that's why uh, it has been a bit infrequent, you know, our yes. updates. But uh, as you may have noted, We have a jingle now, so we are really happy about that. <laughs> it, it might be preliminary, but for now it works perfectly fine, I hope, as a jingle. 
And yeah, let's get into the uh, Nuri Birgit Jailan. Um, and of course, who could be a better guest on our show than, <laughs> than Erku? Erku, uh, can you tell us a bit about maybe your relationship to uh, Jailan as a filmmaker? Are, are, are you an admirer of his work? I couldn't say, like, I respect him as a filmmaker. Like, he's definitely one of the, like, the greatest filmmakers in Turkey. Uh, like in the contemporary cinema like you can't compare to when you compare him to other directors you can clearly see the difference in his like a in his work that i i'm 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 definitely sure but like when i think about his cinema his aesthetics and i ask myself like what if it, if i were in turkish i'd would i like him as much as i do today the answer is a bit no i, <laughs> I think uh, but like since today the reality is that he's a Turkish and he's doing films about Turkey yeah I think it's like yeah I, I, I like him as a filmmaker but um, for the, his previous feature that was like uh, in competition at 2018 Wild Pear Tree I think it was my least favorite film so far maybe uh, Climates was a bit like his er in his early work I didn't enjoy it much but I think like Wild Pear Tree was really bad and Upon watching uh, about dry grasses, you see how his style can be really uh, exquisite and masterful. And yeah, and the comparison is really, really like uh, evident between Wild Pear Tree and dr about dry grasses. Yeah, I must say I have missed uh, the Wild Pear Tree. I still have to see that. And I also didn't see the film that won him the Palme d'Or in 2014, Winter Sleep. I only saw Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, which I really, really liked. Yeah, nice. And uh, Eliana, I think you have not yet seen uh, Jaylan film, yes, right? Yes, this was my first Jaylan film. And so I was, what kind of experience was that? I was honestly quite blown away in some sense. I know that this is... Uh, it left me... There are very few films that I think are able to resonate a chord somewhere deep inside of, of, a, of the viewer. And um, this film did it for me. In terms of identity, in terms of belonging, in terms of the complexity. So the film is, correct me if I'm wrong, about um, a man who teaches in an urban, uh, not an urban, in a rural area <laughs> in Turkey. Um, right, and um, that is in uh, Eastern Anatolia. Eastern Anatolia, where the uh, climate is quite harsh mm -hmm. and difficult to like. It's always snowy and far from the city center, so it's a bit depressing area, let's say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and we learned that uh, there you basically only have two seasons. You have a hot summer yeah. or <laughs> you have a very severe winter, a very yeah. cold winter. And... Uh, The reason why he's there is because it's uh, basically uh, an act of duty. Like it's, it's a, an obligation a, to. It's like, an obligation. Mm -hmm, he like, has to work there because uh, it's an act of uh, solidarity, I suppose. Right? No, no. It's like a. It's something public. Like the 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 uh, public system like forces you to work um, far from where you normally live. Right. It's like a. Yeah. It's public it's, service. Yeah. Exactly. Public mm -hmm. service. It's like this for. Uh, not only for teachers and also doctors that also mm -hmm. right and you get a sense of frustration right in that character that he does really does not want to be there yes um, it seems that he does not want to be there and these were actually 
influenced by his screenwriters' um, um, diaries. Yeah, um, exactly. Akin Aksu. yeah, his own experiences as a teacher. He's also, he's really te- a teacher. Mm-hmm. So his own experiences, yeah. So what happens in the film is this man is accused of having some form of indecent contact with mm-hmm. the children there. And this becomes more a meditation in some sense that becomes a process on what is civilized contact with the future generation, what is correct, what is not correct. Mm-hmm. The protagonist is very, is somewhat unlikable and he yeah. challenges this idea of, oh, I was just being nice to the students. I was giving them gifts. I was showing them that we could be friendly. Um, it later, and this is, I'm, I was curious to see how you thought of this scenario. Um, but before like getting into that i think we must also say that that like that that's that's not the only part of the it's narration true. like it's a character study so when someone asks me like what is this movie about it's really hard to tell the story like because even though uh this the the part you tell was like a uh, part of the story it's not the whole thing so it's really difficult to summarize what is going on in the movie but i think um, that part clearly explains how ambiguous and complicated this person is towards because of the interactions with this, his pupils. Like he tries to be generous and like kind, but he's he has also a really dark and re- really condescending way of talking to these kids. So you don't know re- what does what is he thinking about that kid, like that girl either. So I think. The, the, um, it's not about a sexual thing. It's just like the way he approaches to the other people around him. And it's crystallized with the, the, in his relationship with the girl. Because it, when you think about it, it in his every interaction with other people, there's a, like a complex, ambiguous side of it. Like we don't know if he like, likes that person or like tries to like, he also always tells bad things about them too. So I, I more, more think I, I, I think I place that in the more um, global uh, character tra- um, character trait of that person. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's just like a reflection of that side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what Oku says is of course true that this is maybe rather like the first third of the film or even less and then it develops more and more into different things and not even into one different things but many and I think it can really be said that this is sort of reminiscent of the structure of a novel it feels very much like reading a novel it is also structured alongside these um, micro narratives yeah Mm-hmm. Um, micro narratives and also long uh, dialogues, right? You have these long dialogues in the first one, maybe being um, the discussion in the teacher's lounge, mm-hmm. and then you have these really mm, these moments when you have a dialogue that goes on sometimes more than ten minutes or so. There is this one uh, in the second third where uh, our where our protagonist, uh, uh, Samed, or what is his name again? Uh, Samed. Yeah, Samed, he talks to uh, an English teacher called Nurai, uh, on whom 
this is also so ambiguous. This film is full of ambiguity. At, at the beginning, it doesn't seem that he is very much interested in her, but then um, his his flatmate Kenan, uh, he seems to be much more uh, successful in you know uh, in gaining her attraction, and then suddenly our protagonist becomes more interested in into in, in that English teacher as well. It's it's. And then they have this fascinating conversation and it just, uh, this is sort of the structure that uh, it really reads like, uh, it, it, you can see it as a novel, but um, it's also so filmic, I, I think, you know, it's very cinematic. It has these shots where one of the themes of the film is really mm, fleshed out when the camera assumes the sort of over shoulder look and uh the interlocutor is blocked by by the backside of the head of the person uh, over his shoulder uh, the shot is framed as if we cannot really see the other person because we are so concerned with our own lives and that these other persons or these other people might might well be just a projection of how we perceive the world how we perceive them and i think that's just there were very fascinating shots in that film mm -hmm. To go off of that, also there was this um, woman. She is a painter, and um, the main character Samet likes to take photos, as if there is a difference in how one documents a moment, whether it's translated into a painting in this more expressive sense, or if it's simply capturing what one sees mm -hmm. in a more immediate sense. And I think for me, there was a, a lot of immaturity in the character of Samet. Um, and, but one in, in a sense that he's also very sure of himself. When you talk about how he later becomes interested in this woman who he seemed to at first have no interest in, it really seems like an interrogation of, of his own self that he's searching for. And right. I think he knows that he's like a really uh, not self-accomplished um, person. And he reflects to that to other people, to the relationship with other people, and the, his frustration with the students is actually, I think, uh, comes from here because there's a monologue to, um, near the end when he, where he talks about like where he addresses in his mind to the, the his student, um, what was her name, Sevim, like yeah. as if she was representing some kind of idea, some kind of ideal that he'll never. Mm -hmm. attain because he's all he's already past that age past that maybe not maybe he 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 could never have that because of his personality so i think there's a frustration about that and maybe there's also the frustration that sevim doesn't know about anything that her potential and she's so carefree and doesn't give a shit about anything that there's also this part of her her attitude actually and her attitude is really complex too like we don't know what is what is she really thinking about about summit about this this weird relationship between them yeah and this relationship is also very reminiscent of i had to think of nabokov you know and lolita in the way that you have this elderly woman uh, this elderly man that is sort of projecting all these all these um conceptions all these very difficult uh, even philosophical uh um thoughts he's all he's all projecting that on this little 
girl, you know, who is of course not an equal on a, like in an intellectual sense. So it's it cannot, you know, there cannot be this relationship that he projects on her, but that also makes it so fascinating. And um, I also love this idea of uh, projecting here because I think the film has this uh, scene that we are not going into because it's really one should see that uh, by themselves. But there's this matter. Maybe, maybe we can like tell this as a spoiler because it's a really like a scene that is important, right? Yeah, but maybe we can sort of circumvent that in some some way. I, I don't know, but you know, because I don't know if people when they listen to this podcast listen to that podcast I, I don't know if they should already you know know what the specific scene is i don't know do, do, do you want do you want to have a spoiler segment here or we can try to do you want to try to circumvent as much as you can or do you think yeah just uh, you know the way the film starts already that's uh i think a lot of the people to whom i talked they didn't really notice that but um When the film starts, it starts with a snowy landscape and the, the snow yeah. is falling. Mm -hmm. And we hear the snow fall in a way that, you know, is not realistic because we cannot really hear snow that falls on the ground and then it creates a little crush or something. But here there was this sound as if like there was um, hay or, you know, as if there were... Um, rain or something but it was just you know the soft snow as if it was like hitting the camera or something so it already sort of allured to a uh, matter aspect of that film and later the film explores that a bit more and it sort of connects to the overall theme of how complex one person is and how complex one person tries to project themselves to the environment to other people and This film finds uh, such a beautiful metaphor for that. Uh, and yeah, I, I don't know if we should go into that. I think we can go like saying about how... Okay. Um, because there's a... In press conference, Jaylan told uh, be, uh, to the journalist that sometimes when he t turn, like shots in soundstage, uh, he forgets, like in studio, he forgets that it's a studio. It becomes like a real place. Mm -hmm. So sometimes he needs to remind himself that it's actually a studio. So I think uh, there are, like you said, some parts that we get the sense that it's a constructed reality, not only by the filmmaker, but also by the people, like the characters inside, because we perceive through their experiences, like in like it, in several levels, it's a constructed reality. And this, that scene you're going to like uh, circumvent right now <laughs> is also the the example of this i think right and how maybe uh you know our interior world is maybe also how that can be linked to the you know cinema and theater mm -hmm. uh, as well as fantasy and dreams and the energy that maybe it's too much to say this but the energy that becomes very relevant of leeching off of the impossible and then it challenges us to think about what it is when this impossible scenario might be broken in some sense. Right. And um, maybe we should go to another film here because uh, we have to look at the time as well. But um, just would you two recommend that film? And how does it rank, you know, among the films you've seen here? Is it one of the better ones? How does it feel to you? Eliana, you go first. For me, it's a film that I would like to see again. 
it ranks very highly. I think it's probably at the moment the top film for me. Um, in so many inexplicable ways and ways that I just feel that I know that you have a little bit more of a complex relation to Turkey yeah. and Turkish cinema. So like um I think it's to me as well like maybe because of its subject matter the zone of interest is also there but it's also in terms of like the technical aspects the aesthetics and the the subjects he tackles I think so far yeah it's it's one of my like favorites maybe like with the zone of interest in first three but it's really difficult to to me like to rank films especially if I really love them so let's just say it's definitely in the first three all yeah. right i'll join you in on that as well i for me that was really uh the first highlight and maybe still um the film i look forward to the most to seeing again um and let's maybe go to a debut now and this is joanna arno's and uh, the feeling that the time for doing something has passed uh eliana since i think this film has some Maybe some interests that uh, you share as well. Uh, what kind of what kind of film is that? So the film is about um, a woman in her maybe late twenties, early thirties. She's thirty-three. She's thirty-three. Okay, so we know that she's thirty-three. She's I don't think it's a spoiler. She's naked all the time. She's emerged from um, a generation of people post nine eleven. Takes place in Brooklyn. The film itself is a fragmented or some people have said mosaic like collection of small vignettes in which we understand a woman who has grown up thinking perhaps that success and failure are very closely linked that she doesn't know her place in life that her job is her identity she has a low corporate job and she doesn't quite know what to do she's in a long-term relationship as a subordinate um yeah so uh, one should say that she uh, practices uh, bdsm and this is really part of her you know overall life really that all these humiliations that are also something that she nourishes at the same time that she feels uncomfortable with them so she cannot be without them but sometimes when she faces these situations they are also quite harmful to her mm -hmm. and maybe just to uh, contextualize a bit more so as I said this is a debut feature and um, she had some short films which uh, also for instance played at the Berlinale uh, where she for better dancing she won uh, a silver bear and another title is I hate myself uh, with a smiley at the end <laughs> like the smiley is part of the title so You can just infer from these titles that, uh, you know, she is uh, very concerned with, you know, herself, like self-hatred, but also to some extent self-love and maybe mm -hmm. about representing things that are not seen very often on screen. Mm -hmm. And I, um, this is executive produced by Sean Baker and uh, plays in the Kanzen uh, de Cineast here. Uh, It's really, it's a really funny film. I think uh, the audience were having a blast, I think, when we saw it. I don't know if your audience reacted similarly. My audience reacted similarly. Um, there are a lot of 
very funny snippets in her interaction with her parents. And I guess we didn't mention yet. Uh, mm-hmm. We should say that uh, Joanna Arno uh, plays the lead. Ah, yeah. yes. So and her name is Anne. You know, like yes. it's a very autofictional. It's a. Uh, it's yeah. It's very autofictional, and it's a woman who is existing in a society that seems to want to erase her. But she's very conscious of this idea of her role in right. it, and she is very conscious of what other people want of her. I think one of my I don't one of my favorite scenes was when she asks her long-term BDSM partner, "Can we just have silence?" And he responds by saying, "We tried that before, but you <laughs> felt very hurt." And then silence ensues. Yeah, and this sort of represents this ambiguity of her feelings toward these uh, humiliations that she sort of you know summons, but then when they occur, she is uncertain about whether she, she she wants to proceed with them or not and so it's yeah it's really fascinating and a lot of these you know a lot of the comedy here just results also from the fact that um the camera often just stays way too long on a scene <laughs> and it stays so long on the scene that it then becomes funny uh, at some point it's just uh yeah it's very good it's very elliptic it's very um also at times it plays really out like a sketch comedy right because Mm -hmm. there is not really a narrative frame here i suppose it's rather really uh structured in scenes as opposed to like a thread or something that Mm -hmm. connects them and if you couldn't hear so much here this is because you haven't seen that yet right yes i'm really curious about it and i'm still trying to get it into my schedule because there's there's a less screening tonight so let's see whether i'm going to see here or in in its rerun in paris in maybe like a two or three weeks let's hope but i'm really really curious about this film and i know like when you see a film and you read about it you know that you're going to like it i think that's one of the film's like this for me at least right and it matches perfectly with a film that i hope we will talk about soon but we cannot today and this is blackbird blackbird blackberry i think they portray in a way uh it's it's a companion piece i think in in some sorts even though they are very different women with a lot of different awarenesses but i think they will uh, that would be a good uh, double feature. There is something there about the way Did that... Did you see that too, Arku? So I'm going to add, add to my schedule right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, no. It's, this year I'm having problems with going to Kenzan. Like, it's so hard to schedule everything. And yeah, I'm, I have not much... I haven't seen much from the Kenzan this year, sadly. It is difficult for to schedule, but luckily... In Paris, they will be yeah, showing yeah. in the following two weeks or so mm-hmm. the Kenzen and the Semaine de la Critique. And also the USR, like UCR, sorry, UACR uh, and Saturn Regard will also pass in. Ah, yeah. Right. To yeah. our Parisian audience. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Which I, I have no troubles to believe is numerous. And let's now uh, switch maybe to the last film that. I could imagine we all like to more to a more or lesser extent, and this is uh, Todd Haynes' May December. Um, Oku, what kind of relationship do you have with Todd Haynes and his films? I think like it's a relation that sends these technical like aesthetic aspects of 
analysis when you do the film criticism. It like touches me in a way that it's like a personal preference for a filmmaker, even though you don't like if you, even though there are like some um, I don't know parts that are not perfect. You just love it, and I think it's precious that we have those kind of films and filmmakers. And I think that Ted Todd Haynes is definitely one of them. I'd have to agree. I think he has masterful control over his vision and in creating atmosphere and just evoking all that he does through his films. I think of Carol and and I was very impressed by um, May, December, just how camp it was, how in the mood, how the visual um, film was uh, overexposed. It felt like we were looking at a, the, an open tabloid magazine. And also like a telenovela aesthetic too. Mm -hmm. Right, because it is sort of overexposed, right? It's uh, mm -hmm. way too bright, but it also pertains to like film aesthetics. It looks very grainy at the same time. It has this weird mixture. This is also maybe a very timely episode because today it was announced that Netflix has bought the rights for North America for $11 million. So um, I hope this does not mean that uh, there will not a, a theatrical release there. But since this is only for North America, I also hope at least that in Europe this may play out differently and there will be uh, screenings in theaters. Mm, yeah, the fourth, the fifth, I think, uh, uh, collaboration with uh, Ju uh, yes. Julian Moore as well. So this is really, uh, what do you call it? Like a um, muse director yeah, relationship. Exactly. <laughs> it's really that. And we have here Natalie Portman as well, who's hired to play uh, the character of Julian Moore, who who has spent some time in prison. Uh, for a relationship she under you know she um, she had with um, her, her her son's friend like and also the also he was working in the pet shop that she's also working <laughs> right <laughs> and this started when her her later husband was 13 years old so yeah yes. uh, and this will not be, of course, this will not be the first film in the Cannes competition that will have such a relationship. We, we were still waiting for the uh, Catherine Breillat, but <laughs> so that's still ahead. But yeah, Eliana, what kind of uh, experience did you have seeing that film? Well, this film was very funny. We were just talking about how in the Arno, um, there were some scenes that were so long that they became funny. Here, Todd Haynes masterfully uses music to create humor, which was very much appreciated. It was, a, it, topically, it's very complex. We have, as we said earlier, so Julianne Moore's character was in a relationship 20 years, or started a relationship with a 13-year-old boy, and Natalie Portman, character comes in sort of like um method actor to yes, observe right to observe and she's a complete interloper mm -hmm. even though she is invited to interlope <laughs> to some degree and she's both becomes a presence that's not wanted but we feast off of her own intrigue and obsession and we ultimately come to understand 
to a degree, is Nellie Portman able to portray Julianne Moore's character of Gracie or not? And Todd Haynes plays brilliantly with that by not making it about necessarily the trauma of the age gap nor of Gracie's own character, but rather about a more interior sort of I don't know. There's a distance. I don't know. How, how did you um, feel when you like, saw it? What I found, first of all, what I found interesting in the movie that like it started and we know that Natalie Portman is going to portray this woman, but we don't know why at the first place. Like mm-hmm. we don't understand what, why she's there. Right. But then she likes uh, goes through the news about this case, but still we don't get it. Like pet shop prison what is happening we don't understand and that's why gradually like it's it's it becomes clear really gradually and like when it's sti- when it's like kicks in it's like oh <laughs> wow and that's fa- that's process was really really interesting for me to like have that moment and i think um like first natalie portman's character approaches gracie is like a more complex hysterical maybe like a something to un, like a really mysterious object but gradually she becomes a, like a hysterical caricatural r- reflection of that woman because she gets so obsessed to understand why this happened why the that her husband is behaving like that or why her children is like that she she becomes actually the the maybe the comedy humor uh, part of the this story because mm-hmm. her her passion her obsession it's so sometimes goes really exaggerated mm-hmm. and yeah no I, I definitely felt manipulated in the same sense that my intrigue level into what her character Portman's character was doing to that couple who presents themselves as as a very stable couple which I think is exactly what Haynes wants us to to see to see that fascination and the boundary of of what it is that they know about one another and how they have continued this relationship from its inappropriate emergence to 20 years later where the characters continue to have a very cozy um, rural ish they live in savannah georgia um very traditional life yeah um, it, and, and isn't it an island setting i believe oh. there it's in savannah georgia but um and i think that's on the coast okay i'm there's a lake. or is there a lake know. or is that on the coast or is it north okay. we should look that up <laughs> <laughs> but anyway yeah but this sort of um society there plays also a big role it's really mm-hmm. they are you know the People in her neighborhood, they sometimes send her really, like, literally pieces of shit, you know, via mail. And then she's already used to it. So because, of course, all the press back then that has lingered and people still know uh, what, what what happened. And even though now this relationship is sort of socially acceptable. Uh, but at the same time, people also express some pity, right? So uh, she is this self-made baker. She works as a baker, and we later here at some point, people are basically just ordering the cake there Mm -hmm. still because uh, she doesn't have another existence, really, and she relies on, like, her existence sort of relies on having these customers and being occupied to some extent. So it's a really... 
it's between these two poles and I really like how this film was also so uh, beyond uh, um, moral concerns, you know, it's really uh, <laughs> because of course this is about a, in a sense child abuse, but it's also clever how the film sort of undermines that there is this one uh, casting scene where the Oh, Natalie yeah. Portman character, she is uh, seeing the audition tapes on her on her laptop. And then uh, sh her conclusion at the end, uh, after seeing all the videos, is that uh, these kids are not sexy enough. Mm -hmm. And I think this sort of, you know, expl this sort of shows us what uh, Todd Haynes is going for. He he's not at all concerned with uh, being on the right side here, being on the... Uh, legally justified side of of matters it's rather much more complex and it's so it's so fun to see how sometimes when you think okay these characters uh don't really have interiority then suddenly they they sort of develop some uh complexity but then when you expect complexities sometimes they suddenly become very flat and i think he's very good at sort of mm -hmm. orchestrating that mm-hmm mm -hmm. And maybe I can add, like, to, to, to tell a novella setting about the fact that the story is so complex and there are like, so many layers. He could have maybe, like, um, gone a bit far, like, explore more, but he stopped, like, it, as if it was an episode of a, of a series that will continue. <laughs> so I, I love that, like, ambiguous ending, too. Like, we, like, there could be lots of stuff about, because it's an extended family and they're, like, children of, from his previous husband and her children doesn't like seem to like her either so it's really there there are lots of things to explore the, the the awakening of the his younger husband like because he gradually starts what actually is hap has happened to him mm -hmm. and we we are left uh we're precisely left at that moment we don't know what happens afterwards he's just had this awakening it's so it's it was like an episode of a telenovela with the muse, use of music. By the way, let's maybe we can tell that that it's Michel Legrand, the composer, and it's used and it's from Joseph Losey's Go Between film. Uh, the the soundtrack, line, I mean, oh. it's really difficult to like reproduce it here, but it's it's a really key thing about the film's atmosphere and tone. Actually. Yeah, it really becomes a sort of uh, light motif. Yeah, and. Uh, also, since you mentioned the aesthetics, uh, the DP here is not as usual. Uh, I forgot his name, like Lachlan or something. The uh, DP, it's uh, Christopher Blovelt, and he made uh, some of the films of uh, Kelly Reichardt. So, like Showing Up, that played last year at Cannes here, or uh, this uh, Jonah Hill debut, uh, mid 90s. So, mm -hmm. the, I, and I think you can sort of see it. They have a very similar. Um, they have a very similar texture. And, and I was actually surprised to hear that this is not shot on film because it looked very film-like. film, uh, film -like. It seems, seems This to is really... such a Todd Haynes thing, though. Like... <laughs> <laughs> I suppose. No, no. Uh, what do you mean by that? Because, like, um, let's say in Far From Heaven, it's supposed to pass in, like, the 60s. And, like, he uses that as static, but it's, like, a, an anachronic thing. And I think that's, like... Feeling is also creates a, a, an anachronic sentiment of what we perceive, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, 
And yeah, it looks very beautiful, I think. And it, and, and it really f fooled me in that respect because it looked really, it looked really good. And, you know, it looked like, you know, the way I uh, like my films, you know, <laughs> like very grainy. And uh, yeah, do we have more to say about this film? I don't have anything else more to say about this I film. I must say, you know, even though that's not a very analytic ca category, mm -hmm. but it just... The acting in this film is just, you know, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just so good. I mean, Julian Moore is, you know, we expect from her always the best, I suppose. But uh, Natalie Portman, who sometimes is not so successful in her choices, I think, or not like, not as, you know, I I sometimes feel weird about certain films he uh, she picks, but here she's just incredible. Yeah. And even this sort of lisp, that uh, yes. Julian Moore has <laughs> the way she is then impersonating the list yes. that Julian Moore <laughs> yes. takes on for the film. I mean, that's just gold. Yeah. It's really, it's great. Yeah, I think right. that leads us to the end yeah, of the episode. That right? concludes our episode. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. I thank you. <laughs> yeah, and maybe. Oh, yeah, we had this very, you know, this very last question, maybe because we are more like two thirds into the festival or something. Do we have something like a Palm d'Or candidate that we think uh, could make it so far that um, of course we haven't seen all the films yet but are there is there a film that you don't necessarily like the most but that you think has the greatest chances of picking up the Palm d'Or I would say that um, Zone of Interest would be very high on, in interest for the Palm d'Or I think um, but It's very hard to say because, like Iku said earlier, just the president of the jury this year is very unpredictable. Who is that? Uh, Ruben Östland. <laughs> and, um, but there is something that seems very, let's say, very urgent about it because it is telling us again that what we see every day, what we experience, everything, we are just as complicit, perhaps we are living next door to whatever horror that might be taking place um, just, just, just over a wall or over the metaphoric wall. Um, and um, it also calls into mind the 2009 winner of the Palme d'Or, uh, the White Ribbon, and... I think that these stories sometimes are able to push. Yeah, it's radical enough for Aslund, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking like you, but there's also like the dialogue parts of Jaylan's film mm. where like this interaction between women and men mm -hmm. is also reminiscent of Aslund's moral dilemmas in his film. So maybe mm. he, he can like that. He could like uh, mm -hmm. appeal to him. So that's a chance mm -hmm. to, I guess. And uh, this is uh, such a great point because I think uh, often people discount that sort of aspect of Ursula's films and they just make really like to make fun of, you know, the overtness of his films, the obviousness maybe of his films. But I think, you know, these sort of moral uh, dilemmas and these also just uh, great uh, dialogue work at times, you know, like when I th think of the first act of uh, Triangle of Sadness, you know, I think so sometimes you, uh, he sort of captures uh, uh, such... Uh, okay, now I lost my train of thought, but, you know, I think there is 
I can see how you could see that Ersland might take interest in that. Uh, yes, yeah. that, that, sorry, I'm just going to add, yeah, but now that you call into my mind the, the dialogue that was essentially a seduction was very, mm. <laughs> very powerful and persuasive and I have not seen something so exciting for a while. <laughs> and so to conclude, if people are looking for you, Oiku, where can they find you? I'm on Twitter with an uh, username Feride Mercury, like this famous singer. And I'm writing for a Turkish magazine called Altyazı, based mainly. But I also published in a movie notebook, Senses of Cinema. And currently I'm writing for Soro Cine, which is a French outlet for feminist film criticism. Yeah, I think, yeah. Well, all. thank you again for joining us. And I hope some of our listeners will follow you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And I think uh, we ended here and... Eliana has already alluded to uh, the zone of interest that we are yet to talk about, I think, in an upcoming episode. I hope it will be the next one. And yeah, so long. Uh, yes, and thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.